the best part about having pets? Housebreaking, right? Always fun. Um, and uh, we're going to, we've, we've sort of been looking at this idea of having a dog and um, what that, how that relates to our faith and ways in which there are, I guess, correlations between raising a, a dog and growing up as a Christian. And so we uh, took a look in our first week of our series at um, just this idea of instinct and what it means to develop uh, a gospel instinct rather than the sinful instinct that we are born with. Um, And then last week we took a look at uh, puppy love and kind of, you know, this whole idea of keeping our faith young and fresh. And then today, we're going to take a look at this idea of housebreaking, and we're going to sort of explore the idea of sin and the stains that it causes in our lives and sort of look at what we do with that kind of stuff. And so I want to take you through a couple of Proverbs that I read to the kids earlier, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 51 which is, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on that before we read through that, but it's kind of a, it's, it's, um, it is sort of the uh, perhaps greatest script inspired as a result of, of horrific sin, really. And we're going to sort of step into that and look at that a little bit. So, you know, when you're taking a look at an idea like this, it's always good to start with a proverb or two that kind of square us off and, and get us set in the right perspective. So we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, where it says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. And then Proverbs thirty twelve, There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth all right true isn't it um so let me give you a little bit of background on psalm 51 uh, it, was, it was written by king david and he had been out on his balcony one day and looked out and saw a beautiful woman in a neighboring home uh, who was bathing. And so uh, he was, her husband was off at war, and so David sent for her and committed adultery with her, and she became pregnant. And so then he felt the need to cover up his sin. And uh, there's an expression that, that someone taught me uh, several years ago, and it may be helpful to you in understanding life and how things work, but it goes like this. Sin begets sin. That's how it works. So he, he commits the sin of lust. He converts that into the sin of adultery, and now he feels the need to cover up that sin. And so he sends a message to the to the battlefield, to one of his generals, and he says, send this woman's husband to the front lines and then back our troops off. And so he essentially, by order and edict, commits murder to cover up his sin. And uh, 
then he marries this woman, and um, the prophet Nathan comes to David and sort of sets before him. Apparently, I don't. God doesn't want me over there. Um, and sets before David this this sort of riddle. And he says, you know, what would you do if if a man? I think he used a sheep, didn't he? If he stole a sheep uh, from another man and then and then killed somebody to cover it up. I don't know how, I don't remember exactly all the details, how Nathan said it. You've probably read it before. Um, and David, David gets furious. He goes, I would have that, tell me who that man is. I'm going to have him arrested. I'm going to have him beaten. I don't remember what he says, but he just goes, you know, and Nathan says, that man is you. Now, I don't know about you, but saying that to the king, that takes some guts, right? But Nathan points out David's sin, that David had presumed he had covered up, that no one knew was there. Um, And Nathan sort of reminds us that God is not fooled by our attempts to cover our tracks, that he knows where we've been and what we've done. Um, And so in the wake of being found out and having his sin uncovered, um, David at some point reaches the place where he writes the words I'm about to read. Um, And so these words are born out of the the agony of realizing that we are sinful. And I I want you to just pay attention to um, the fullness of the realization that David comes to in this process and how he expresses that in this passage. So we're just going to read the first 12 verses of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
and uphold me with a willing spirit. Okay, so sin is a little more than a mess on the floor, right? Um, but some of the principles are essentially the same. Um, you know, that puppy, usually, most puppies I've had, sorry, um, Apparently, the people on this side of the room need this sermon more than the people on that side of the room. I'm just saying. I, I walk over there, I get feedback. I don't know if you heard it or not. It's okay. Um, so, okay. The puppies that I've had, when they make their little mess on the floor, they know it. Right? And they give you that little shameful puppy look, and you want to roll up the newspaper and rub their nose in it, but they're just too cute, right? And so you take them outside and you clean it up and, and you know, try to figure it out, try to train them, get them there. Um, that puppy is trusting us to deal with that the right way, to not go too far in our response to, um, you know, they're unable to clean up the mess themselves. So that becomes our job. And similarly, uh, we in our sin, these Proverbs remind us, are unable to clean up our own messes. And that's where God comes in to provide for us that cleansing which we cannot achieve on our own. And so, the first thing I want to talk about in in this discussion of sin is trust. In in whom do we trust? Or the call to trust in the right person when it comes to our sins, failures, mistakes, selfishness, whatever you want to call it. Um, We are to trust in the right person. And these two Proverbs remind us, you know, you cannot clean up your own spiritual mess. We are not capable of cleansing ourselves from our sin. Uh, We are spiritually stained and in a state of, of incapacity in terms of our ability to atone for that sin. Um, The Proverbs remind us You can fool yourself. You can, right? You can think you're okay. You can think you're without sin. You can think you're clean. But there's another truth that supersedes that one or that self-perception. And that truth is, well, we're still in our filth. So you can fool yourself, but you cannot fool God And you most likely will not fool very many other people, right? Um, But first sort of turning point in terms of who do we trust, it's not us. We do not want to trust in ourselves in terms of dealing with our own sin. We are just like David. And it does not matter how severe the sin is. We commit one, 
and we will, we will pay just about any price to cover that up with another one, which then has to be covered up again and again. The truth is a lot less stressful, quite honestly. I wish we could all kind of get that message through, right? Um, you cannot clean up your own mess, but you can ask God to clean up. It's what he does. He's an expert at this. He's got all the right equipment. He's got all the experience necessary to come in and clean up. Um, David, in his psalm, in Psalm 51, reminds us that this requires humility on our part, which we are not natively good at, I recognize, but it requires the humility of recognizing this, this position that we've gotten ourselves in. Um, Have mercy on me, O God, Psalm 51, verse 1, according to your steadfast love. In other words, not according, don't, don't treat me on the basis of what I've done and what I deserve. I am in need of mercy. Um, and he goes on. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David recognizes in humility that his only hope for forgiveness lies in the hands of God. And so trusting in the right person, asking God to forgive us, requires humility on our part, and it involves confession on our part that we are able to be forthright and come to God with what it is that we've, where we've sinned. That we're able to tell him in humility, I blew it. I need you. I need your forgiveness. So, simple beginning. Just to turn our attention to the right, toward the right person, towards God. In, in humility and in confession, we find ourselves in the right posture to deal with our sin. And, and here's, here's the basic difference, right? When, when David or, or me or you are in the cycle of sin and covering sin with sin, because that's what we do, right? There's no honesty there. There's no humility there. There's only striving and effort and stress. And when we turn and stand before God and say, uh, I blew it, there's, there's honesty, there's openness, there's relief in coming clean and in knowing that I'm not playing a game anymore. Um, and so there it begins by trusting in the right person And David moves on to remind us that we're to focus on the right problem. Um, I'm going to get a little bit theological on you here. Just bear with me. All right. But I want to talk about an old Christian concept called original sin. We need to understand original sin if we're going to really deal with the sin in our lives. Or maybe better put, to let God deal with the sin in our lives. So, do you remember what God said to Adam about the tree 
the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay? So, Adam, in his wisdom, disobeyed and ate. And, uh, and then brave, brave Adam, when God came to him, what did he say? This woman that you gave me, He's pointing in two different directions. Um, She gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's not my fault, right? So sin begets sin, right? So he's he's playing the blame game right out of the box. Um, that, That sin that Adam and Eve collectively shared changed everything for humanity. So... If I take um, two impure, tainted, poisoned bottles of water and pour them together, is it possible to get a pure, unpoisoned bottle of water out of that deal? No, right? So every child that Adam and Eve conceive and have, and every child that any of those children conceive and have, is born in sin, So that's sort of original sin, if you will. And David, interestingly, um, you know, he's he's committed adultery, or he's lusted. He committed adultery. Um, He he lied. He sent uh, really dishonest orders as a as a king. That was really sick and weird. And he ultimately committed murder. Um, And then he tries to cover it up and hide it and whatever. And in his, in his response, he doesn't go there. He doesn't list out the various specific sins that he committed here, not in Psalm 51. Um, he goes all the way, he drills all the way down to his original sin. Did you catch what he said? I was sinful from my mother's womb. From the time of conception, I was conceived in sin. Interestingly, the the son that David had with Bathsheba as a result of his adultery, you could say, was conceived in sin, right? David's parents were legitimately married in the eyes of God. It was totally legit. Um, he He was not a child of sin, if you will. And yet, he, he drills down to this original sin and he says, I, I was conceived in this state of separation and anxiety. I was conceived in sin. I, I was conceived as an enemy of God, if you will. And I think we miss that often in, in current Christianity. We look at our sin as the things that we do. And the truth is that our sin runs more deep than that. It's it's more about who we are in our fallen, sinful nature. Um, So it's not about what you do. That's not what original sin is. It's about who you are. That sin is native to our nature. It's, It's, we're born with it, if you will. And David knows this 
And he knows that all of the doings that were sinful ultimately flow out of this nature that is sinful. And so he goes there to the root of his sin to, to deal with God and on that level. And for whatever it's worth, just a pastoral opinion, I don't think we're really dealing with our sin until we drill down to that original sin depth and deal with God there. Then the doing that flows out of a, out of a clean soul uh, is, is, is not a striving after atoning for our own sin. It's just a response of gratitude for a loving God. Okay. So we need to understand original sin as, as David points that out to us. And we need to understand God's first concerns as it relates to our sin. Um, verse 6, David says it this way. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God's primary concerns as it relates to our sin has mostly to do with our sincerity, our honesty before him, our coming clean and laying it at the feet of our God. So we learn to be open instead of in hiding, which if I can go back to the Garden of Eden, that's the first thing they did after they sinned. Right? They heard God, they ran, they covered themselves, they hid. Um, they're trying to hide the shame, which is natural. But God wants the opposite of that. He wants us to just be able to stand before him and say, I sin, I, I, I am sinful. Um, so he wants sincerity, and ultimately he is after our hearts not our doings, our being. This is what God is most concerned with. And he essentially tells us, if you can yield to me who you are at the depth of your soul, the doings will take care of themselves. All that flows out of that will, will flow out of, of peace and trust and hope and good. But let's drill down to the very core of your soul. Let's get there. Let's start there. And so God tells us we need to trust in the right person and focus on the right problem in our sin. Um, and let me just add this, this little pastoral caveat if I can. Um, I'm not saying that we should not confess individual sins. But I am saying that our first job is to drill down to our original sin, which is not about the doing, it's about the being. Okay, so we trust in the right person, we focus on the right problem, and we seek complete purification, complete cleansing, if you will. Um, David uses a strange phrase uh, in verse 7 
he says, purge me with hyssop. Okay, this is a, a shrub, an herb. Um, and there's, there's several things that could be going on here. There, there was you know, some belief in the ancient Middle East that hyssop had medicinal value. Okay, so maybe he's saying, uh, I, you know, like, what, what do they call that when you start a diet now? You do a cleanse, right? Do a cleanse. So maybe he's talking about a dietary cleansing. You think that's what he's talking about? I don't think so. So hyssop was, was used in a, um, you can look this up in, in the book of Leviticus if you want to, um, but it was used in a cleansing ritual. So when a person had leprosy and they had been healed of leprosy, they would go to the temple in Thanksgiving and um, there would be uh, two birds, I think. One would be sacrificed and the blood would be dripped on a scarlet thread, a branch of hyssop, the live bird, and there's something else in there that I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but you can look it up yourself. And then the live bird, you know, the live bird would be let go and the hyssop and the scarlet thread and the piece of cedar, I think it was, was thrown into the fire. Okay? And so hyssop had this, this place in the cleansing ritual of Israel where it was seen as a, a part of God's cleansing, his healing power. Um, but I, I think I think what David is doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he writes these words is he's just, he's just sort of creating a coat hook in, in the history of redemption with this word hyssop. There was another place in the Old Testament where the, the branch of hyssop was extremely important. It was in uh, the, the Passover. And so... Israel was in slavery in Egypt. Uh, nine plagues had come upon Egypt for not letting Israel go. And the tenth plague was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God told Moses, I want you to take a lamb. Each family is to sacrifice a lamb. And they're to take the blood and they're to dip a branch of hyssop into the blood and they're to spray it or or. or paint their doorposts and the the headboard over the door, whatever you call that, um, with the blood. And those houses that are marked thusly, I will pass over when I come to bear out the tenth plague on the people of Egypt. And so the people of the people of Israel, uh, on the on the appointed day, they each family sacrificed the lamb. They dipped the branches of hyssop, and they painted their door frames. And you, you know the rest of the story, but um, that is probably the most central place in Scripture where hyssop is involved. This is at the a very center point of Jewish worship, of Jewish remembrance, of Jewish hope and faith. And this hyssop of the blood of the Lamb applied to the, to the homes of God's people that meant their salvation, that their firstborn would not die. And God did not paint his own house with that branch. His firstborn would die for our sin. 
his firstborn would be the sacrifice by which we can be cleansed. And so David makes this sort of veiled reference to hyssop. But I think, I think God is doing far more as, as we look at this, at this expression of original sin and how God just folds that right over to this idea of hyssop. And it's like he hangs a little hook in Psalm 51 and Jesus is going to take off his robe a couple thousand years later and hang it on that hook. Say, this was for me. This was for you to know that I was coming, that I've got this that I will suffer that tenth plague for you, that the blood of the Lamb is real. And so complete purification comes by the blood of the Lamb. Atonement for our sin. Um, Judaism and Christianity are the only two religions in the history of the world, the biblical religion is the only uh, religious faith in the history of the world to develop this idea of, of full atonement. A, that sin must be atoned for, that the consequences of disobeying, uh, of eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be death. The Bible develops this idea of atonement, that one could die on behalf of another. And the Old Testament was full of these deaths, if you will, by animals primarily, where this exchange was pointed to. But everybody knew that the death of a lamb is not an adequate payment for my sin. It's only pointing to the ultimate payment that will be made. And so... We have atonement for sin by the blood of the Lamb, by the one who would fulfill all that Scripture had been pointing to for those millennia. And in him, by his blood, we have the restoration of joy. Now, I don't know if you've ever just been flat out busted in your sin, okay? Um... This, these memories mostly take me back to high school, right? And just flat out busted. And there's, there's that shame, and, and now my friend Matt's here this morning, so he's, he's running the, the, the reel of exactly, there's so many to sort through, right? Um, but flat out and, and, and all my friends swore that my dad worked for the CIA because he busted us every single time. He was just, yeah, anyway. Um, there's that shame that comes over a person when their sin is exposed and revealed and made known. And they're unable to hide. But in that, if we are honest... And we are able to accept who we are and what we've done. There's a freedom at that point that comes. Where we don't have to hide. We don't have to run. We don't have to pretend anymore. The truth 
is out. And we learn something, that we are loved in spite of our sin. And there comes at some point after that flood of shame a restoration of joy and peace because our relationship is now one that is exposed and honest and real and true, whether we're talking about with our parents or with our God. And David exclaims this in verse 8, this idea that our joy is restored. And he moves on to talk about complete forgiveness. Let me read verse 9 to you again. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David knows that this blood that will come by the Lamb of God or from the Lamb of God will fully atone, fully restore, and completely forgive. And so he looks forward to the fulfillment of God's word in Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that our our complete purification is by the blood of Lamb, by the blood of the Lamb, and it is for the restoration of our relationship with God. This is about the connection, the heart, the love. That's where God is going with it all. Um, Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We are to establish in our own hearts the heart of God. David would, would be called later in his life a man after God's own heart. Not because he never sinned, but because in his sin he turned to the, the blood of the Lamb. And he's drilled down to complete forgiveness and he rendered his heart to God. A heart for God is what we develop when, when we begin to want the same things that God wants. And David gets there because his sin was exposed and because God loved him through it. So, it's about the restoration of relationship, the establishing in ourselves of the heart of God, and the embrace of the presence of God. David speaks of the Holy Spirit, and please, Lord, do not take that gift from me. That is what sustains me. It's what carries me, even in my sinfulness. I need your presence that closely. God's heart, God's present. And when he calls us to express the mind of God in the way we live. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That our will becomes God's will. That God's will becomes our will. That we learn to live from the heart in a relationship with God where we are connected, we love, we respond, we listen, 
um, we are truly His. And this only comes when we have dealt fully with the depth and even the ugliness of our sin and given that all to God and trusted Him to take upon Himself the burden of our sin, to forgive us by the blood of the Lamb. Um, We can trust Him. And we can find in His Son complete, total forgiveness and grace that covers even our original sin, that holistic sin that we are born with. It's gone. It is lifted from us in Christ. And we have new life in Him where we learn over time um, to live in that closeness of relationship with God where our hearts are one with His. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your word, at your love, at the way in which you plant these seeds thousands of years before they will be fulfilled to remind us of your love, of your plan, of your grace. you would not stop until every sin from all of your people was atoned for fully on the cross by the blood of your Son, the precious Lamb of God. Lord, you spared us with his blood, but you didn't spare yourself. And we marvel. And we thank you. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us into a life that is more closely knit at the level of our heart to your will and your mind and your love. In your son's name we pray. Amen.